Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, Charles Spurgeon. Um, may or may uh, may or may not have heard of him. He's a a prolific writer. Actually, um, if you count his sermons, someone did a did a you know just a number counting. I guess it has counted the words that he's written. Um, but if you if you count his sermons, he's actually the most. Uh, on the right word, so he's written he's written more on in Christian writings than any other human being in in, in his history. That he has he's had more uh, books and chapters written uh, to, for Christian thinking. Um, but he is without a doubt an outstanding preacher. He's known for his preaching. Today he's often titled the Prince of Preachers, and that it's believed that he wrote. Uh, he preached somewhere between 20 to 25 million words uh, in his sermons. I still want to know how someone counted that. Like one, two, three, 20 years later, like 20 million, all right. Um, well, he isn't very famous today uh, in general population. He, he's definitely very widely known amongst pastors and theologians, Christian thinkers. Um, but, but there are a number of remarkable facts about Spurgeon, remarkable things about Spurgeon, right? I mean, it's like, once again, like, I don't know how somebody figures this out, but, but they, they, they'll, they estimate that by the time he was 21, he's preached more than the average American preacher will preach in their lifetime. It was just a huge impact in his preaching throughout his life. Um, but a fact that we see about Spurgeon that comes up often is that he was someone who was deeply marked by pain and suffering in his life. He had a lot of pain and suffering in his life. Um, he had lost countless siblings. Uh, his, his wife died way too early. Uh, he had a, a number of diseases that he wrestled with throughout his, his life. Um, a gout actually was one of them and, and wasn't very curable or workable in his, in his day. And it just was caused pain to move um, to, to just, in any kind of emotion, it was just, he said it was just like his whole life, he felt like he was walking around with snake venom pulsing through his, his, his joints. Um, but eventually that claimed his life. Um, but among all these, these struggles that Spurgeon had, um, perhaps one of the ones that was most um, spoken about from, uh, from, by him was, was depression. He was very, very, very depressed. And it's likely it was like circumstantial depression. Just so many of the things that he, he battled in life. So many of the struggles that he had battled in his life just kind of claimed this joy in, in him. But the, the man's life was riddled with pain. He struggled and he struggled a lot. It's just he struggled a lot in his life. Um, but Spurgeon isn't alone among Christian thinkers who struggled with depression. C.S. Lewis struggled with depression. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, John Calvin... I'm sure many more we could, we could, we could list off. There's, there's a lot of scholars that believe a lot of biblical writers struggled with depression. It's believed that Elijah, Jeremiah, David himself struggled with depression. Uh, and it doesn't mean uh, depression over the whole lifespan, but at least there's seasons in their life you can, you can see this. So I want to ask us an honest question this morning. Why does God let his people struggle with depression? Perhaps maybe a different question with a similar kind of curiosity would be this. If God brings so much joy, why do Christians get depressed? Why, 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 is, there, why is there space for that? Why is there room for that? Shouldn't the goodness of God and the love of God just overwhelm us with his magnificence? Why then are so many downcast? Why are, are so many Christians depressed? 
it would, it would, at least if it, just under an assumption, it would seem that depression would be for those who didn't have a hope. Who believed that this life is all that there is and tomorrow sucks, so my whole life is just going to end up sucking. It would seem like that, that's what depression, you know, people who are depressed, that would be who, who are, you know, the people who are depressed are the people who have no joy, no greater hope for tomorrow. Not for Christians who deeply believe and are convinced of, of, of our eternity, of our worth, and of our value to God. Spurgeon definitely believed that, and yet he was marked by depression. And I'm going to be honest, I don't have all these answers for us about why that is. I have opinions, but that's not really what I'm, I'm interested in talking about today. Instead, I want to look at Scripture, and I want to look at Psalm, a Psalm that speaks to depression at least, and it shows us, at very least, it shows us um, a way in which a, a biblical, a, a way in which a faithful person ought to struggle with depression. In a way, it shows us a solution to it. We're going to be looking at Psalm 42 this, this morning. And right off the, the bat, I just want us to grasp that Psalm 42 uh, is written by a depressed believer. We don't know how or we don't know exactly who the author is. We have some guesses, but we don't really have any you know, strong, there's not this strong overwhelming evidence that shows it's one way or the other is David or someone else. Um, but in the last four or five years, I'll say that Psalm 42 has become my favorite psalm in the Bible. And I, and I might actually go on to say that it's probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. Because it tackles this realness to life. And more importantly, it teaches us something about how to deal with it. Um, before we jump in, I just want to guide us to, for a few things I want us to look for as we read through the psalm. Right? Uh, and there's, there's two things I want us to know about the heart of the person who wrote this. Right? One, it's written by someone who, yearn, who is really yearning for God. And if I wanted to find what, what, what a faithful living is, right, in, in the simplest sense, it would be somebody who's really faithful uh, towards God by yearning for God, by wanting God, by recognizing God is that solution. The author of this psalm knows the solution to his or her pain. That, 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 that's what, what we see here is that whatever they're going through, the solution to that pain is God. And the author knows the real source of joy in their life. Right? It's not material change. But the goodness and the, and, the, and the love and the grace of God. Look for that yearning as we read through this psalm. Secondly, it comes from the heart that is, it comes from a heart of someone who is depressed. It comes from the heart of someone who is defeated, broken, frustrated. Uh, life has gotten the best of them and they're on a low part in their life right now. There's a real struggle going on in their life right now. And this psalm is being written in the midst of that. But let's go ahead and, and open up our Bibles together. Psalm 42, starting right at verse 1. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Right, there, there's that yearning. In verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? There's some of that brokenness. And these things I remember. As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. 
with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festive. Um, So here the writer is talking about how uh, he or she used to uh, lead others, or how he or she used to lead and just praise God. Right? They would not only just praise God themselves, but they were actually in a, in a role or responsibility that led others to praise God. Right? So some of the theories that say that the psalm was written by David uh, during his time that he was running from, from, from Saul, uh, it doesn't quite add up because it doesn't seem like that, at least there's nowhere where we see that was something that David did. Right? So some people believe that this was written from a, a worship leader. And now that this worship leader is in this whatever defeated moment, and they're talking about how they used to, and they used to you know, lead others with such joy. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember how I used to praise God. Now verse 5. I would say that verse 5 is the key to the whole psalm. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My, my salvation and my God. Um, I'll, I'll get more to this. But I want us to understand at least one thing right now. What the author is doing. He is, he is talking to his own soul. See that in the language. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to his own soul. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon. From Mount Mazar. I notice the language there. My soul is cast down. Therefore, I remember. Therefore, that word, it's a causal term. Right? So it's explaining something. In other words, it's saying, I remember you because I'm downcast. That this this depression, this frustration, this brokenness is leading me to remember God. It's causal. It's the reason for Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Right? There's just these waves crushing over him. And this is a reference to these kind of, this felt like overwhelming trials of life. I feel like I'm being overwhelmed by these trials in my life. Uh, This storm of the life, the burdens of this world are just pummeling the soul. That's what he's writing here. I feel overwhelmed. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Why they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now, these two verses, or at least there are two verses here that are paired together that are very interesting. All right, so first he says, God is with me day and night. It's kind of, it's kind of in there with an A. God is with me day and night. And then he says, um, I say, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? You let my enemies afflict me. Now, the precision of the word here, I think, is very important. And I think actually very fascinating. Because in verse 8, he's, he's proclaiming a fact. God is with me. Right? He's proclaiming a fact. Right? God is with me. But then in verse 9, he's expressing a feeling by saying, I say, why have you forgotten me? 
Right? And so this is transition from him talking about what is and what he's currently feeling. And the distinction is very important. The author is recognizing something that's very, 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 very important. Right? First, that God is, and second, that he feels that God isn't. This unveils a profound point for us. Uh, we need to distinguish what is and what we feel. Especially with matters of faith, we need to be able to distinguish what is and what we might feel. Because as we all know, what we feel isn't always what is. Sometimes we feel like something that isn't true. Sometimes we feel like someone is speaking to me in in an angry tone, and so I think they're mad at me. But that feeling might be wrong. It could very well be wrong. right? So we need to distinguish what, what we feel versus what is. Now, uh, learn from, the, from this prayer, though. Some want to belittle uh, this, this, you know, this, this sense of, that we might, uh, that this, these feelings that we might have. Now, if we feel something and it isn't true, ignore it. Right? If our heart is feeling something, um, but we, we know it's not true, like we feel God's abandoned us, and so there's some, some of us just want to kind of dismiss this, this feeling that we have um, that maybe contradict, uh, contradicts our faith. But understand, this isn't what the author does. He confronts it, and he confronts it with prayer. God, I feel like you're ignoring me. I know you aren't, but I feel it. I feel that, God, right now. I feel that, that I'm just I'm left alone. Now the psalm concludes with a, 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 a word-by-word repeat of verse 5. In verse 11 it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Um, I'll say it again. Uh, I think this chorus is the secret to the psalm. And here's why. You see, the rest of this psalm balances on three distinct elements. Um, it balances on one, the honesty of its depressed heart. I am depressed. I am downcast. Right? It's, 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 just, it's just an honest expression of, of the way the heart feels. Uh, second, it's this felt abandonment of God. It's this feeling that God has abandoned me. And then the, there's a third element here. It's, it's the reality of God's goodness. So there's this honesty of my depression, there's this feeling of abandonment, and then there's this expression, this, this you know, proclamation of a fact that God is good, that God is with me. That's, that's something I know to be true. The author is depressed, feels abandoned, yet knows the goodness of God. Um, as you read and study this psalm, you see that the author is essentially wrestling with these things. Right? The more you read it, the more you kind of feel it's like this emotional wrestling with these three, these three things. I know God is good, but I feel alone, and I'm getting depressed. I'm getting sad. Uh, my, my guess is that the, the author is going through what we might consider like an emotional roller coaster in their life. Something many of us are familiar with, right? We have these highs in our life. God loves me. Things are good. My family's happy, finances are good, I'm at Disneyland, and then there's just like these moments in which you're, you're crushed, right? I'm going home from Disneyland, finances are bad, because I spent all my money on churros. Um, this feeling, though, I mean, we have seasons in which there may be, there may be crises going on in our life. 
There might be things going on in our life that's triggering this, this like, I feel like God has left me. I feel sad. I feel broken right now. Right? But, we, but, our, but that our hearts ride that roller coaster of life. And we go up and we go down and we go up and we go down. I feel good. I feel good, bad. Um, who, who can relate to that emotional roller coaster? Maybe that's not a season you're in right now, but maybe you can think back in, in, in years past how your life has gone up and down. And sometimes it's triggered by circumstances. Probably most of the time it's triggered by circumstances. That when things are going well, you, you're, in, you're in this high, and when things are going bad, you're, you're in a low. And your relationship with God seems to be attached to that. Uh, one, one moment you feel great, and the next you feel cr- crushed. I think it's very common, and I think this is why. I think it's because we listen to ourselves too much. We listen to ourselves too much. Our, our minds start running, they start freaking out. We start thinking about everything that's wrong in our life. We start thinking about the little amount of control we have in our life and in the outcomes that might be in front of us. Or we might be thinking about the challenges in our life, the hard things that are going on in our life, or the hard things that might come up tomorrow. Right? We, we're faced with, our mind just starts freaking out and just starts running with the crisis or the pains or the burdens or the brokenness that are right in front of us. And our worried hearts keep saying again and again and again, this is horrible, this is unredeemable, this is nothing but a loss. Our worried hearts scream that at us. And we listen. And we listen to that worried heart. We listen to that worried soul. I think the author sees that within himself. He was listening to his worried heart, his downcast soul. What can this soul do? Rather than just listening to his worried heart, he begins to talk to that worried heart. He says, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again Praise Him, my salvation and my God. Why are you depressed? You know, you know what the future holds. You will praise God again. You will thank Him again. He is your salvation. You see what He's doing here? He's preaching to His own soul. He's preaching to his own soul. He's preaching to that troubled heart. That frantic heart. That worried spirit within him. His soul had been depressing him. And he responds to it. Dear soul. Dear self. Listen. Listen for a moment. As I speak to you. Another preacher I'm very fond of is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He famously calls sermons logic on fire. Another great thinker, writer, and he writes his book on spiritual depression. He wrote this book on spiritual depression. It's actually almost entirely about Psalm 42, this psalm that we're studying this morning. And this, and this this is part of what he learns from it. This is Martin Lloyd Jones. He says, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. 
You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou downcast? What business have you to be disquainted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is, what God is, and what God has done. And what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself. Defy other people. And defy the devil. And the whole world. And say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. I love the first sentence. That the main art and the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. And life, that emotional roller coaster, takes us all over the place. And our hearts just ride with it. And we let our hearts to speak to the wholeness of who we are. And we just ride that, that emotional roller coaster up and down, left and right. Circumstances change. They continually change. Things come, things go. Pleasures come, pleasures go. People come, people go. And it's so easy for us to get caught into that roller coaster. And to let our hearts then be hijacked by this constant change of routine. Of this constant uh, give and take, things coming and things going. And we let ourselves be yanked around, broken and even depressed over the constant change of this roller coaster. Faithful living is when we then decide to root ourselves to God's word. Is that despite these changes in our life, despite this emotional roller coaster we find ourselves in, faithful living is when we decide to root ourselves to God's word instead. I'm not going to let my worried heart preach to me like that. I'm not going to let my emotional, distressed heart hijack my life, hijack my decisions, and instead I will root myself to God's word. C.S. Lewis had a a great view of faith. For him, faith wasn't just an impulsive, an emotion. It wasn't just something you feel one day, because the next day you might not feel that. Uh, It wasn't something that you have in a spur of the moment. And at this moment, I have hope, so I have faith. Rather, he says, this is what he says about faith. He says, faith is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Right? Faith is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted. Right? You know you've logically worked it out. You have reason for the faith that you have. And so I'm rooted to that. I'm rooted to what my, my reason has discovered. And tomorrow, tomorrow my emotions might take me somewhere else. But I'm choosing to root myself to that, to that reason, that, 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 this, this faith that I've accepted despite my changing moods. Faith is when we hold on to that thing we know, we are convinced of, even when our emotions are astir. Faith is when we cling to truth. 
that we have believed in, that regardless of our changing highs and lows, that we believe in it because we have reasoned with it. Faith is rooted in hope that we have reasoned with. So that uh, faith will not change with the tides of our storms. Right? I mean, when we, when we have that grasp of faith, that this is something we've reasoned with, which we've become to discover, we know is true. And we root ourselves to that. These, these change in the storms of our life, the change of our health, the change of our finances, the change of relationships, that doesn't sway us the way it does without faith. I ask you this morning, do you believe in the gospel? Do you really believe in the gospel? Don't let it be a whimsical emotion. I feel good about Jesus. I like Jesus. I like this whole God loves me stuff. Makes me feel good inside. Right? Sure, I believe it because it feels right to me. No. Don't believe something because it feels good. Don't believe something because it feels right. Don't, don't believe something because you want it to be true. Sometimes I, I, I hear Christians kind of use um, argument, arguments or they, they, they practice evangelism that I think plays on what people want to be true. Like, doesn't heaven sound good? It doesn't matter how much you want it to be true. It doesn't make it true. Right? And that's not why we should want it to. That's not why we should believe that it's true because we want it to be true. That doesn't matter. Believe in something because it is true. Do you believe the gospel is true? Are you, have you grasped this point in your life where you're like, I am convinced of the gospel? Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you believe in the promises of God for your life, for your destiny? Do you believe in the abundant love of God? That you're worth, but do you believe in, 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 in your worth of God? What scripture shows us what our worth in God is. Do you believe in the grace of God? Are these things you have reason to be true? Because it's that belief, that, that convinced belief that's going to root you to Jesus. Even as storms rage. Even as you face gains and losses in life. Even as the roller coaster takes you up and down and up and down, don't root your faith in an emotion, but root it in a belief that you have reasoned with. Because it will be that faith which you will have to preach to yourself in the storm. And if your faith is just an emotion, something you feel, and that's all that it is, that has little weight when the storm is raging in your life. It has very, very little weight. When you find yourself with this kind of a spiritual depression saying, I feel like you have left me, God. I feel like you have abandoned me, God. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to that worried heart. To that worried soul. The gospel which says, out of love, Jesus bought you at an extraordinary price. And he promises you a future, a destiny that nothing can steal from you. Preach the gospel to yourself.
That beautiful, beautiful message. Bought for by the blood of Jesus. Spurgeon had a lot to say about his depression and about depression in general. Um, late in life, uh, he, he discovered this epiphany. This is what he writes. He says, I, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart. Um, I think as you read and you search the way he wrestled with depression, you're going to discover something that his depression was a battle of faith. It was a depressed soul trying to pull him down and a faith trying to preach to himself. And his comfort was found in the goodness of God. The tried and true goodness of God. The tried and true uh, found in the history of mankind, in the history of Jesus' church, in the history of his own life. Right, His comfort was found in the goodness of God and the, his willingness to trust him. Now, I don't want to leave here without saying this. Right? I do not believe that if you're depressed, especially chronically depressed, uh, it's just, a, you know, because I've heard this before. I've heard people say this before. Depression is just comes from weak faith. I would never say that, and I'm not saying that. I'm not pretending to say that. Right? There's certainly so many complexities to depression. There's so many different forms of depression. And I, and I, and I absolutely believe that depression... Um, should be dealt with professionals, right? That there's, there's, there's solutions that we, we look for in that. But I do, however, believe this, that regardless of the form, regardless of the, 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 the bigness of the depression, that daily preaching the gospel to yourself has the capacity to work wonders in the joy of your life. Right, that the daily preaching of the gospel to yourself has the capacity to work wonders in the joy of your life. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the goodness of God's love to you every day. And remind yourself of this. Remind yourself of his love. Remind yourself of what God has done. Remind yourself of what God is doing and what he has promised to do. Um, when it comes to our burdened souls and our distressed hearts, we need to stop listening to the, that broken and worried heart within us. And we need to start speaking. Take yourself by the hand. Demand the attention of your frazzled heart. And speak. Preach. Tell the truth that you know. As you remind yourself of what God has done, and you hold to the promise of what God will be doing, you will be like the psalm saying, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. I find that the older uh, I get, and the more challenges I face, uh, especially challenges I face accompanied with God, I find myself, this, this, this being something, uh, it's easier and easier to preach to myself. This truth that I will praise God again. In a week, in a month, in a year, 
It won't be long before I'm looking back at the crisis and I'm saying, wow, I praise you, God. I praise you for the trial. I praise you for the heartache. I praise you for the battle. I praise you, God. Preach that to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you, Lord, as a community. And Lord, some of us in this room might have struggles, might have brokenness, might have pain. Maybe our our frazzled hearts are in a state of worry right now. Maybe we're in the middle of an emotional roller coaster right now. And Father, I ask for your voice to supernaturally speak to every single one of us. Let the gospel be pressed onto our heart this morning. Let us remember and recall the goodness of who you are and the great things you've done. God, even now, as we just come before you in prayer, Lord, that maybe you can help us, Lord, by reminding us of the seasons in our life that we face trials and your goodness shined in the midst of them. Of the times we faced heartache, we faced disappointment, we faced depression, and your goodness worked. Your love was bigger than our, than our brokenness. God, let us cling to that, to that history we have with you. To the history that you have with all mankind. And let us trust you because of that. God, give us the faith that we are confident of Not just because we feel that it's right. But God, give us a faith that we are confident of because we have reasoned with it. Give us a faith that we can root ourselves to in the midst of the storms in our life. Father, I pray for this community now today. Let us experience your love this morning. Let our hearts just be rejuvenated by your love this morning. That might overflow into into the lives of those around us. That we might be salt and light to this world. God, challenge us, convict us. Let us be bold outside the walls of this church. That we might grow your kingdom. We might live out your great command for us to make disciples. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.